You know, when I think back on those sort of dot-com days and the other brands, there wasn't another brand which was as well-crafted and as beautiful as Inkscape. This week, part two of a look back at Inkscape. This revealing reminiscence features Dave and Darm, of course, Jeff Scott, who was the CMO of Inkscape, and Paul Loberman, who was a senior manager. Together, they'll examine the legacy 20 years on, here on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of Contrarian, new media in the UK and US, comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Looking back on Inkscape and talking about some of the lessons that were learned and some of the application of those lessons today. Dharma and I were chatting about design thinking, and I guess you said it at the start that you basically launched the project or the brand on the back of a lot of customer research and customer insight. So it feels very kind of design thinking in terms of the approach you took. I guess I'm interested, what were customers' reactions? You know, what were some of the highlights in terms of what came back from customers about the experience or the products or the services? One of the most striking things, obviously we launched this product right into the eye of a dot-com storm. So having launched the business then the world to virtually implode. And people had invested quite a lot of money in this. So when they ended up with a first year statement, so obviously you could get statement reviews, but obviously every year we definitely sent them all the statements. It was around about coming up for Christmas. But we've been engaging with them every time the market had fallen or something had happened. We'd write bespoke letters. So we were having that engagement. But when we sent, I said, look, we've got to ask customers at the end of the year, how are they feeling about this? Because I really want to know whilst... The sales team says everyone's happy. I don't know. I want to hear it from customers. I want to be able to. And we sent out a questionnaire and we sent out directly to customers to feedback on how you're feeling about the business. And I was just astounded, you know, because literally everything came back to at least eight out of 10 on all the scores, even for the ones where, I mean, most people had lost a lot of money, but maybe not as much as the rest of the market. So the products had performed pretty well. Because they'd sort of been educated and kept in touch and aware of what was going on, because there were no surprises, that whole sense of, yeah, but we trust you, we didn't have any people massively disinvesting. So that for me was the most, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I sort of was, that I thought, yeah, but when I ask you, you'll say I'm really unhappy with the service purely because I've lost money. And people weren't. They were really happy with the service, even though they'd lost money. Because it was a service and that this was just what was happening in the world. It's not our fault. That's fascinating, to be honest with you. Again, it's another lesson in terms of making sure that customers are kept up to date and, okay, we all have to have statements. I mean, there's almost too much information now from a kind of customer point of view. It's sort of, then how do you kind of balance that out in terms of making sure that you kind of get cut through in terms of information? But that's fascinating. But it is the adult conversation. And one of the things that we didn't do, but we might think about doing if you launched it now. So when we try to segment the people. If you imagine a four-box matrix with advice 
on the x-axis and an engagement or desire for information on the y-axis and the top right with people very engaged and very interested but also wanting some advice and input those were our primary customers so they were happy talking about finance but in the end wanted some advice and support slightly different messages really could go to people who were in the bottom right quadrant so still wanted advice but really weren't you know, that engaged with finance, weren't interested. Simplifying messages, maybe making it more palatable, just giving them high level and ask for more detail if you want it. And tailoring some more of that would be helpful. Thing is how you measure all of those things and how you see whether things change over time. And then obviously the people who don't want advice, who do their own thing, we describe them as hard nuts, hard nuts to crack. You know, they were they either sophisticated if you wanted lots of information or unsophisticated if you didn't and were disengaged but also didn't want any advice but interestingly we had people in all those categories who actually joined the service if you were able to talk to them and get them on board the advice process in the end did lead to some really powerful relationships so it was a good outcome overall. Having gone through the pandemic earlier this year and the stock market really plummeting although it was a much longer, you know, elongated period that we launched in 2020 that the stock market bounced back quite quickly. My experience of some of the investment companies is they sent an email, which was fairly generic where we're at the moment. And I think what we had the benefit of with Inscape was that personal touch again, was that if we felt that a particular customer was jittery and was a bit nervous, we were able to go and meet them or call them up and just really allay any concerns for her just to kind of keep them happy. And I think that's kind of, you know, why we had such a good retention rate as well during that period as well, because it was a tough one. When things are going wrong, is the time to dial up that customer experience and get customers sort of really understanding what's going on? I mean, you're absolutely right. My various sort of investments with different advisors information I've had over the last few months has been woeful and does then start chipping away at you going they can't even put the effort into communicating with you in a meaningful way what the hell are they doing in terms of advice around my money and I think that whole thing around education and knowledge trust and security is very tightly bound and I think somehow the Inscape brand managed to kind of tie those together into something very cohesive so you know, for me it's not a surprise that customers were happy even when the kind of chips went down we've done loads so far by the way and i was kind of keen to ask a final question and then see if there's any other kind of comment what were the lessons that you kind of learned out of inscape that you'd give to a monzo starling you know some of these new players they have to understand the length of the runway you know, so how much time have you got? This is not a cheap exercise. And Inscape wasn't a fully rounded bank. So it was purely living or dying on its investments revenue. And the, the world changes rapidly. So I think for a Monzo or Starling, it feels different, but not that different, as in the clock is ticking. And banking all has a cost. You know, so if I think about a Monzo and a Starling, it's not free to do what they do. And yet people have got used to free banking. You know, so the challenge there is people were prepared to pay a cost for Inscape and they were paying about 2% in total, although it was split advice and for investments. I think the real challenge for the new players is the pricing is only going one way. And yet education of customers is that everything has a cost. You know, I think people are forgetting that. 
and everyone loves a free lunch and I have a Monzo account and I'm sure all of my kids have a Monzo account and they all think it's wonderful. But if the business doesn't make any money, it hasn't got a future. So celebrate not raising cash, but creating wealth. So I've seen the stuff that Revolut is doing now is actually saying, no, no, this year and Starling this year have come out and said they want to break even in 2020. But it's going to look and feel very different. I think for them, what they have to think about is why do people use you? So what we thought about for Inkscape, it was that whole point of difference of being, this is internet, telephone and people relationship. It's value and trust. It's access to things you wouldn't get access to, institutional investments for local people, democratizing wealth. It felt very different. If I go to Monzo, the only thing that's different is I can aggregate my account and see how much I've spent in McDonald's this month. It's free and it's great and it's a front-end application. It works beautifully, but it's not going to be there in two years' time if it doesn't make any money. And do I really trust them? Do I really, really trust them? So if I was an N26 customer, I'd go, wait a minute, I've just come to you and now you've closed up shop and gone back to Germany. Well, wait a minute, I just said this was fantastic. Of course it was fantastic because it was free and it was brilliant, but it was never making any money. So what is your point of difference? And so if you could do things which were lifestyle oriented, if you could launch Insurance products which could insure me by the hour. I've seen some new creations from different banks and institutions who've come up with this. So what is your point of difference? If it's just cheaper and more beautiful but doesn't make any money? It's easy to get sucked into the kind of investor's honeypot when things are going well, when customer growth is strong, etc. But at some point the tide turns and everyone's eyes goes to profitability. The culture has been very strong at Monzo. That's kept it going really well. The customer kind of back behind the bank has been very good. But I don't know how long that lasts as soon as there's bad news on the horizon. Yeah, Amazon took years before they actually made a profit. Now, with banking, probably there's a shorter timeline in which people are comfortable with that. As well. But it's not just a shorter timeline, is it? So if you think about the basic model that Facebook, Google, 90% of the revenue is advertising. That was always the case, you know, and how you're using my data and selling it off. But let's just hold that thought. But basically, it's advertising. Same with Facebook. So if you've got scale... That's great. So you can tweak scale. Now, if Monzo have scale, the sad thing is scale doesn't bring extra revenue. Scale brings extra cost. (laughs) It will bring some extra revenue. But unless you get your margin management right, unless you actually start to do some proper lending and have some good quality stuff and to recognize what value pools you actually have. So you look at Santander, they make eight billion a year in a bad year. 8 billion. You look at what JP Morgan invested in IT last year, 11 billion. 11 billion just in IT. And they still made money. So to believe that these new institutions, they've got to believe that actually they've either got to partner with or to be something completely different. Just doesn't make any economic sense. But you look at how Robinhood, you've seen Robinhood made 600 million, I think it was, or have got revenue of 600 million. I can't remember the exact numbers. And I'm thinking, how does it even make money if it offers free trading and offers just volume stuff? And the reason brokers pay Robinhood way more than they pay Schwab or anyone else to do their trades. You think, why is that? You go, well, because the average Robinhood user is much less sophisticated, does lots more options trading. And if I'm a broker, I take the other side of that deal. I can make more money on those trades than I can off someone from Schwab who probably makes quite a few good bets. And that, for me, is just wrong. 
You know, yeah. when I think about on the customer side, you're looking like Robin Hood, hey, I'm giving everything, I'm allowing you to trade. So that for me is the bit where people go, yeah, I'm investing in Robin Hood. I go, well, I want an ethical company. I want it to do the yeah. right things for the right reason. You know, so just giving people access to all of that stuff without educating them, for me, leaves yourself open and isn't something I would be 100% comfortable with. The other thing that I was struck by about Inscape was the employee experience as well. So, I mean, you talked about everybody being kind of very aligned. But again, with our kind of interactions, what you felt was this was a company with a real mission. So there was a lot of energy in the business as well. Things that you do that now have a name. So you could call that agile. And when you think about, you know, how Google operates, where there might be a problem, but everyone's vested in trying to fix it. So no one has a specific role. Yeah, you've got a job, but the stuff that needs to be done, you just pick it up and do it. And if you're the guy that can do it, then do it. And if you stay late and you sort it out, then yeah, expect to be thanked. But actually, that's just what we do here. So that intensity, that desire for wanting it to succeed and knowing it was tough, galvanized everyone. So people did work late and long hours, but because it felt like a family and it felt like you were doing it for a common purpose, it never felt like that. It never felt like ridiculously hard work. No one had to say, where are you going? You know, it's a clear sort of common set of values. I mean, most of you came from Abbey National, right? Mm. But here you are in a brand new organisation and the culture is totally different. That's a neat trick. And surely that would have been beneficial to the main group. How come it didn't go back into the group like that? Because when you have a team of 100 people, it is so much easier to be, you know, how do we make decisions around here? Just for the people who can make the decisions on the business were sat in the same room. And it is the real challenge to be able to convert that into an organization which if we're fair is very much more bounded by risk and lots of people with a vested interest in keeping the status quo because actually that's how they keep their job safe you know we knew if we didn't succeed a bit like lots of startup all the startups you'll see today if it doesn't work we haven't got a job so we're going to try and make this work because a we believe it and b we believe everyone around here has got the same understanding and set of desires to want to make this work and some of the things we shortcutted you know we did things that were in hindsight maybe you know a little on the edge but actually at the end of the day we're doing all the things for the right reason you know then sometimes they're not the right things but they're for the right reason and I think that mentality and it's a thing that Paul talked about with the hiring the right people what I really want is people with integrity with that drive and that passion and that knowing that they will do the right things even if they're not necessarily going to be hugely successful, they're doing things for the right reason. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really interesting. Great to chat and thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of Contrarian New Media, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.